Welcome to the Talking Gardens podcast with me, Stephanie Mahon, editor of Gardens Illustrated. My guest this episode is Troy Scott-Smith, the head gardener of Sissinghurst Castle Gardens in Kent, famous as the ultimate romantic English garden, first created by Vita Sackville-West and Harold Nicholson. I went to Sissinghurst to chat to Troy because, well, be honest, wouldn't you if you had the chance? And after a walk around the garden, we settled down for a chat. I started by asking Troy what he would like to include in his dream garden. Gosh, I think for me, a dream garden, I mean, I've been so fortunate in working some incredible gardens in my real life. And to be able to then have a dream garden better than all of those is quite a tall ask. But thinking about your question, I think for me, firstly, it's something around a real sense of place and this idea of embedded history and and really connection with the landscape where the garden is going to be. I think that's really important. Um, so I'm thinking about, I mean, all of the gardens where I've worked, I've had this, but particularly maybe Iford, perhaps surprisingly, is the place that actually seems to encapsulate a real sense of place. It's this Italianate garden. It's, it's just outside the city of Bath built by the Edwardian garden designer Harold Peter as his own his own home and garden. But it's an Italian fantasy, really. It had all the qualities that he liked in a garden. It, it for him, reminded him of a, perhaps a, a garden on the shores of Lake Como or Lake Garda in northern Italy. It, it's a steeply sloping garden cut into terraces, at the bottom of which is the fast-flowing River Froome, that just runs along the the boundary of the garden. And so it's this Italian sort of garden laid out with architecture, with with remnants and relics of Harold Pito's travels as Roman columns and Byzantine roundels. It's an amalgamation of objects brought together, yet it feels just right. But then it's set within this very English valley, uh, with cows grazing the valley floor, a typical bird song that you'd you'd have here in in England. So it shouldn't fit in, into that landscape, into the spirit of place, but it, it just it, it really does. It's got a very special atmosphere, doesn't it? It's sort of awe-inspiring when you go there and you have that sense of, like you say, this very unusual sense of place, a sense of history, but also that element of fantasy when you go into the lodge and it feels like you've been transported mm. to somewhere completely different and yet on such a small human scale. Mm. I think it, I mean, as I said, it was Harold Pito's own garden and he, so there's no plans for the layout. There's no planting plans, but clearly he spent, you know, a lot of his life there perfecting the space and the transition between those set pieces. And you mentioned being transported. My strongest memory perhaps is is just walking from the the great terrace really a, a play on the Appian Way this Rome this road that leads out of Rome and it's along its length it's studded with ornaments and and uh, antiquities but then literally about five paces to the left you go through this archway in a tightly clipped yew hedge and on the other side, that tightly clipped yew hedge becomes a, a billowing cloud of more expressive yew. And suddenly you're in a Japanese garden. 
So you've travelled really 6,000 miles in six strides. Incredible achievement. Yeah, I come back to it. It doesn't feel wrong. It feels so well-paced and, and the transitions are just supremely crafted. That You traverse the whole garden, quite a small garden, travelling between continents and, and garden styles, starting from this very Georgian Palladian manor house and, and ending up back there, but in the interim, going around the world twice. <laughs> so we know that you would like that sense of atmosphere, that sense of place. What else would your fantasy garden have? Where would you maybe place it? I think views in a garden are quite important. I mean, here at Sissinghurst, where I'm working now, is wonderful garden in Kent, which I'm sure many of the listeners will know. You know, we're blessed with internal views, but views out to the Kentish countryside. But it's quite an inward-looking garden. But for me, my memory of a garden with views is really in North Wales. I was head gardener at Bodnant Garden uh, for seven years. And the creator of that garden, Henry Porchin, and successive generations of his family, right to the present day, remarked on the on the view and and it's an incredible prospect. You're standing at the the top of this actually steeply sloping site down to the river Hyrathlin, which is about a hundred feet lower. But then lower still is the valley of the Conway River. But beyond that is this um, mountain landscape. I suppose it would be the eastern hills of the Snowdonia mountain range or the um, Carnedi mountain range. And it's a really remote, this side of those hills, really remote and and high, you know, high landscape. It's, I think, the seven summits over 3,000 feet. And so often it has snow on the top, even well into into late spring, early summer, there can be a snowfall on the top. And what's magical as well is that it changes so much with the lights. The, the hills are east-facing, and so in the morning you get all the little details, the little hedgerows increasingly getting smaller in as they disappear into the distance, the folds in the landscape, the little creases, and they're all highlighted with the, with the sun hitting them. And then in the evening, it's different again, but equally magical. As the sun sets behind those hills, they all turn black and there's just a lovely silhouette of the topography. That view, I think, is quite quite, quite special and something that I would have to have in my fantasy garden. There's something about the light around the mountains, isn't there? And especially in that area in North Wales, um, it's quite special. Some people like to choose their favourite head gardener from history. Is there a person that you just think I couldn't manage without in my dream garden? I, I'm so blessed, I think, I'm, that I had a family, firstly, who were so passionate about nature and um, they introduced me to the natural world when I was a s- small boy and I would spend so many weekends visiting a wonderful countryside in Yorkshire. So I'm grateful to them and it would be lovely to see family again that are no longer with us. My first boss when I was 16 was really encouraging. But I think coming right up to date, I think I've been more maybe not inspired, but more gently kind of coaxed into a different way of gardening through a lady called Hazel. And I say that because as a professional gardener, you know, we, we were trained to garden in a certain way and it's quite hard to, to, to deviate really. Um, but 
I met Hazel, who's a, a, an old dairy farmer in the north of England. And um, I started to garden some of the land uh, where she used to farm. Instinctively, I was thinking about planting gardens and hedges and lawns. And she really held me back in a, in a gentle but persuasive way to really, I suppose, going back to this idea of sense of place and spirit of place. You know, you don't have to do all those things that I've, I was taught to do at college. Actually, tread lightly, garden with a with a with a light touch, and really respect the place. and And so, it would be lovely to continue having that, that guidance from Hazel as well. So, family, Hazel, and actually just visitors. You know, it, we 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 garden to share the place with others, and again, working all the wonderful gardens I've worked at, I suppose I've seen a couple of million, literally a couple of million people come through those gardens and mostly go away hugely enriched and happy. And and it would be a shame and I would miss those visitors greatly if they weren't there. So people, visitors, family are all important. A slight tangent question. What makes a good visitor to a garden when you're a head gardener? <laughs> What makes a good visitor? What's really nice, actually, just if we can make that connection, I think we spoke earlier about something else and what I'm really keen to do in, in, in a garden is to provide something where the visitor comes in and gets that connection, has an emotional response to the place, whether it's the white garden here at Sissinghurst or the view at Bodnans. And so it's, um, it's providing that. And then the, the good visitor would be somebody who sees that and responds to it and be in the moment. It's fine for people to come for all sorts of reasons to a garden and people walk around and they may be thinking about their children or what they're going to buy from the shops later. But actually, if you can try and be in the moment and really take the garden for what it is, this wonderful work of art, it's a place where nature and lives and light falls in special ways I think um, you know that's the that's the kind of visitor I'd like to be when I visit gardens and the sort of visitor I'd like to see visit my fantasy garden too. Are there places that you have visited that you feel do that particularly well that you sort of would take inspiration from? I think um, the best or the most enriching experiences I've I've actually had in gardens of those gardens but Maybe I didn't expect too much from what, what 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 I mean when I say that is you know there's a high expectation for instance here at Sissinghurst where people come and they expect a certain thing it's well known in books and magazines and photographs and there's a lot of gardens in that way but gardens such as I'm thinking of Balmoral Cottage which is this wonderful garden of a topiarist and artist called Charlotte Molesworth not far here from Sissinghurst. But many others as well, she's no longer with us, but a gardener called um, Joan Lorraine, who gardened at Greencombe in North Devon. Just gardens where the individual character of the garden maker or owner is really comes through, really resonates, either because they're still there sharing their garden with you, telling you stories, or that their character is in, in, in embossed upon the garden in a way that is impossible to dilute. I think they're some of the best ones. And it goes beyond gardens, some memorable experiences, visiting nurseries as well. I'm Elizabeth Strangman, I used to 
work at her nursery called Washfield. There seems such an energy about that place, uh, sort of woodland perennials. This is in the early to mid-90s. Like the greater Magud used to come there and conversations that that uh, occurred uh, around the nursery frames. Graham Goffert, Marchants. Marchants Hardy Plants. Marchants Hardy Plants Sussex. down in Sussex. I mean, Le Jardin Plume, uh, Patrick and Sylvie in Normandy there. Uh, and they've got a small nursery attached. Derry Watkins comes to mind, special plants, again near near Bath or Chippenham uh, in Wiltshire. So gardens and nurseries. And so perhaps because of the energy and the different kind, the different thing it gives to the experience, I think maybe my garden would have a little nursery attached as well. I love being at a potting bench, but I've, I just don't think I've got a natural talent. I don't think I've got green fingers in that respect. I think I'm better at, at placing and planting and, and tweaking and staking and pruning. I think propagation is such a skill in itself. I think for me, propagation, vegetable growing, they're, they're different things to ornamental gardening and require a certain kind of person. So I'd love to take our propagation team at Sissinghurst to my fantasy garden and for them to produce all these amazing plants that they do that then I can I can go and use in the garden. But it's, I just think the nurseries are such the engine room of any garden, aren't they? You know, plants, of course, I love self-sowers and plants that self-seed are, are wonderful to, to introduce into a garden for that spontaneity. But, of course, mostly we rely on plants that we propagate and that we source in to create our, our our moments in the garden. Definitely a nursery specialising in, in perennials and flowering shrubs and trees and roses and bulbs <laughs> <laughs> would be really handy. <laughs> I mean, you've named some real personalities there that, you know, an awful lot of people across the gardening industry would know, might have visited those nurseries and gardens. Uh, and you're working here at Sissinghurst, which is, of course, dominated by the memory of, of Vita and Harold, but particularly through Vita's writings. And we have Dixter so close by, Christopher Lloyd, the late Christopher Lloyd. Do you find that a place with such history, that a place that is so personality driven, that has such character based on, you know, perhaps that one person, how do you continue that legacy? How do you make sure in in gardens like those that you remain true to what they were doing, but maybe they don't get left behind? It's quite a challenge, isn't it? It is, and that's a great, great question. It's, it's something that you know I'm constantly thinking about. Really, how how do we keep these essentially flower gardens, twentieth century flower gardens like Great Dixter you mentioned, and here at Sissinghurst? How do we keep them alive and relevant, yet also uh, authentic and uh, to the to their past and their past creators? Um, and perhaps there's not a single answer, which which is true. And I'm sure I garden in a way that has lots of contradictions. I mean, my starting point always at Sissinghurst was to understand Vita and, and Harold, her husband, as much as possible. Not just, you know, their, their gardening decisions they made here at Sissinghurst, but perhaps understand them as people. And so when we're f- confronted with with a garden issue problem now I can I can come to it from a place of knowledge and understanding about how they might have thought about the same issue or problem and it's not that we have to put back exactly the same plants but it's putting in a planting scheme or a solution to an area which they might well have come up with themselves 
because of course you know times change the challenges that we're facing now are very different to those issues that Vita gardened with from the 50s to the 60s when she was here at Sissinghurst the climate's different so many more plants are now available those plants that perhaps Vita grew now might no longer grow well roses for example could be a a genus in mind where they just get a bit fed up of the same soil and we're now trying to grow roses in the same place 90 years later and um, there's an example where the first plant that Vito and Harold ever planted here at Sissinghurst was a rose, Madame Alfred Carrier and um, the original just died last year after surviving um, for 80 or 90 years but we've replanted that plant but we've tried to find a new position so it's got some fresh soil so it's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure there's a an easy answer. I mean, I certainly don't try and method act. I think that would be wrong. And we don't equally try and keep the garden like in aspic. It has to evolve. It has to continue to, to be alive. Maybe a good example of that actually is the Delos garden. We ha- I haven't spoke about that, but it's a part of Sissinghurst, which, which Harold and Vita made in the 1930s an incredible thing that they were doing they they weren't making a garden in the delos garden here at sissinghurst but they were mimicking or distilling down the whole island of the greek island of delos and bringing that to to kent and 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 recreating something of the atmosphere that we spoke about earlier on when we talked about eiford and the views at bodnant and so that's that completely disappeared it just went because of the difficult growing conditions. And we found some writing from Vita's saying that she would like it to come good in her words. And so we've recreated that. Um, so it feels very new. It feels of the moment with this idea of dry gardening. So a whole garden, essentially, of, of Grecian plants. But it's actually going back to something that was made 90, is it 90 years ago, in the 1930s? So it's very complex, really, and it's a fascinating subject. And, you know, all of those great gardens, like here in Dixter, are facing the same the same set of questions, really. And we, we're answering, answering them in different ways, perhaps. Mm. You mentioned Delos. And I know it's a dry garden. So when that was planted, how much watering has been done there? Is it never watered? Or did it was sort of bedded in at first? Maybe you watered it first by hand? I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah, yes, we did. So, I mean, I really um, must also say thanks to, to Dan Pearson and his and his studio. Dan's been involved here with me at Sissinghurst since 2014 uh, in a role that we call the Garden Dot Parent. And it's what that means is just really once or twice a year, we walk around the garden and, and have a conversation about what we're looking at. And some of those conversations lead nowhere and others lead to the recreation of the Delos garden. And so Dan's very much involved with that project. And we, yeah, you're right, we watered it on establishment and then not again since. But that's actually not uncommon because we haven't watered the rest of the garden either this year, apart really? from that's so interesting. Apart from pots and, and newly planted things. But I just feel maybe it's coming from this background of a family of naturalists and this loving love of the natural world. But I just increasingly feel, you know, we really have to look at our gardening practices and ask ourselves, you know, what's acceptable now, what is really needed. Perhaps it's going again, linking in with the 
farm up north and Hazel teaching me not to just follow the dogma of my horticultural college years. So it's thinking about, you know, our water use, our chemical use, our artificial fertilizers and all of these things that instinctively we would do. And it's incredible to think that, you know, such a significant garden like Sissinghurst, we we are making these interventions. And it's tough because the garden, by not watering, went brown this year. And it was heartbreaking in parts, but it's given us an opportunity to have taken that step in a very difficult year. Of course, we all know how dry it was and have this as a low point, but no, now we can put in various interventions and, and strategies so it, the garden can survive in periods of drought and continue to look good. And it has to be the right thing because I just can't imagine, you know, I've been now gardening. I mean, I've been here for 30 years at Sissinghurst and I started uh, uh, five years before. So 35 years I've been gardening and it's different now to what it was 35 years ago. And in, in another 35 years, it will be different again. And we won't be able to grow the roses and the delphinians and the lupins and have the green lawns that we used to have. We've got so many imported pests and diseases. You know, we really all are starting and it's not just us doing it here. I've noticed it across the community. We're all gardening differently. Quite naturally, feels like we're going into a good place. And how did the visitors respond to the brown, unwatered garden? Do you think that the general gardening public are starting to understand the shift or is it still quite difficult to make them understand what you're trying to do and why? Actually, I think it's been really well received. I think when you think about our visitors, a lot of them are members, members of the National Trust. And so, you know, they've got obviously a, an interest in the natural world in, in, and they're, they're really already bought in on the idea that we should garden in this way. And I think if they saw me using chemicals or, or putting a sprinkler on, on a sunny afternoon in July, you know, they'd be more upset about that. So, you know, the, obviously the occasional disappointment if you expect this idea of Sissinghurst as a somehow oasis from the rest of the world that it can be green and verdant when everywhere else isn't. You know, there has been a few visitors who have felt that, but I think in the majority really get it, understand it and uh, support the idea and the principle behind it. You spoke a little bit earlier about plants and I wondered in your fantasy dream garden that you're constructing, what sort of plants would you, could you not live without, would you have to have? So many. Um, I think that's the, that's one of the tricks, isn't it now? There's so many plants available. I constantly still make the mistake of when I'm making a planting scheme up, having too many things and I have to always control myself. But I would find it really hard, I think, to not just to always find room for an extra rose or two. <laughs> I'm so lucky here at Sissinghurst, you know, that Vita had this amazing collection of old roses, over 300 different old roses. And one of our little projects over the last decade has been to reinstate some of those missing roses that we know she grew. And that's been an, an incredible journey. And that's still ongoing and working closely with the Historic Rose Group and contacting growers and gardens in Italy and France and in other parts of the world to find these missing roses. So it would have to be the rose. And so I would also then have to have walls and old trees for them to scramble up. And so the Pantisa garden gets bigger. <laughs> but 
Yeah, roses are so something so so evocative and romantic, and this idea of exuberance and froth they give give so much at their moment. They're so generous that it's a quality that I that I really love. I mean, a lot of people would say, "Oh, but these old roses, you only get one moment in the year." But does that make them more special for you? Absolutely, it does for me. This idea of having something for a brief moment for me just feels right. I'm so less interested in things that, A, I'm I'm meant to look good. (laughs) Some things, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Perhaps it's the artificiality of some sector of gardening, but that's kind of fine if if it's for that purpose. Um, But for me, gardening is more of a slow thing and something more with integrity and subtlety. And uh, if a rose flowers once for two weeks in June or a peony flowers once for four hours in May or an iris for even more of a fleeting moment, that's really special and you look forward to it and you and you respect it more. Slow gardening. I like that as an idea. It's sort of the antithesis, I mm. suppose, of, let's say, the Chelsea Flower Show sort of show gardens that sense of everything being created for this. Again, it's one moment in time, but it's rather a different concept, isn't it, to what you're talking about? It is. And I I love going to Chelsea. You get so much energy from that experience. But we know there are artificial creations. But some of my abiding memories of Chelsea, and I think lots of people will probably recognise some seminal gardens which have really been significant, like I think the Christopher Bradley Hall Virgil Garden in, I think, 1997 was an incredible moment. This modernist garden celebrating the Roman poet with very simple paired-back planting with spaces between the plants. I think that might have been the first time where, you know, the plants weren't all cheek by jowl, but actually the plants themselves were celebrated and the spaces between them equally so. And then some wonderful moments with Tom Stewart Smith's Chelsea Gardens, they kind of merge into one, but I think there was one Lauren Perrier garden, which I, I think had raised rectangular pools with repeated elements of quite simple planting, Astrantia, Rogersia, green, white flowers, and a canopy of clipped hornbeams. And I think that was very special as well. So it can be the antithesis of Chelsea, this idea of slow gardening, but Chelsea can also bring about some really significant moments in in gardening history. And if there was one thing that you would bar the garden gate to, throw on the compost heap, burn in the garden fire, that you think that is never making it into my fantasy garden, what would it be? Well, variegated plants, I think, would be a good shout. I mean, who likes them, really? (laughs) Um, and what's their purpose in life? I say that with some jest, but having just been really, I think, fortunate that I've worked at gardens where actually those people who made those gardens, Sissinghurst, Bodnan, equally didn't like variegated plants. So I've never really been introduced to them or had to use them in any garden that I've worked at. So maybe I'm being unfair because I just haven't really used them, but... The ones I've seen, I don't really like. 
So, Troy, you've told us that your dream garden would have the dramatic setting of Bodmin to North Wales. It would have the romantic atmosphere of Eiford and Sissinghurst with that lovely historical character. And it would have personality and it would be open to visitors with a nursery on site, with an engine room, a team making lots of lovely new plants for you, which would include old roses that grow up and over walls and drape over trees and definitely no variegated foliage. And it would also have all of the people from your family who've influenced you and your love of nature and Hazel from the farm in North Wales who changed your mind about how to garden. Is there anything else that you think you possibly would have to squeeze into this last minute, squeeze into this garden? Gosh, that sounds uh, rather nice place. Um, How about three things come to mind? A wheelbarrow, because actually every gardener has at least three a chair so I can sit down and enjoy some of this garden and a garden cat. Every garden needs a good garden cat. I think I would like one as well. What would you call the cat? Oof. What would I call the cat? How about Vita? <laughs> <laughs> that was Troy Scott-Smith, head gardener at Sissinghurst Castle Gardens in Kent. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. Find us on the newsstand or at gardensillustrated.com. Follow us to make sure you don't miss an episode.